Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Dr. Sharon Stancliffe from the Harm Reduction Coalition, who will be talking about overdose prevention, and Lisa Dietz, who has created the DBT Self-Help website, who will be talking about dialectical behavioral therapy. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. And for more information, go to our website, hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest is Sharon Stancliffe, MD, who is the medical advisor of the uh, Harm Reduction Coalition, and she will be talking about overdose prevention Hello, Sharon. How are you doing tonight? Very well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Tell us a little bit about, uh, is drug overdose a big problem in the United States? About how prevalent is it? Drug overdose is a huge problem in the United States right now. In the last year that they collected the statistics, there was about 37,000 drug overdoses in the United States, surpassing automobile accidents. Now, the vast majority of these were related to opioid drugs. And have we have we seen an increase over the years in recent times, or is there more overdoses than there used to be? Yes. There's a, an incredibly sharp slope of overdoses going up since 1970 when they began to track them. And, in fact, I was just looking at the statistics this evening, and it appears that we've gone up about 10,000 or more per year in the past couple of years between 2007 and 2009. Of course, there's always a lag in the statistics. So we are not making a lot of headway. And, again, you know, it's more than motor vehicle accidents, so we need a seatbelt for overdoses. Um, what's causing these overdoses? So you said it's it's mostly opiates, but is it uh, illegal drugs like heroin, or is it prescribed opiates? Well, now, I'm from the Harm Reduction Coalition, and we focus more on the illicit opioids there, so I'm particularly concerned about heroin overdoses. But the fact is that heroin overdoses, at least in the statistics we have now, have remained pretty steady over the years. What we're really seeing is a dramatic increase in the number of people dying from opioid analgesics. There's a variety of reasons for those deaths some of which we have an idea, some of which we're really mystified about. There has not been a sufficient amount of research on it. Um, Now, with heroin overdose deaths, we know a lot about them, and I think we'll get to that later when we talk about our prevention project. But with the prescribed overdoses, we know that some people are not understanding what their physician has said. Unfortunately, there are physicians that are over-prescribing and under-educating. And then there's a lot of these medications that are diverted to people that are using them recreationally that do not intend to die but don't know how to control their use. Um, Do we also see a lot of people selling their prescriptions? Is that a problem that you're aware of? Well, if you look at the statistics that are coming out from the government, when people talk about using 
analgesic opioids illicitly, they say the vast majority of them, we're talking, I'm sorry, I don't have them right in front of me, but 70% or so get them from a friend or a relative. And when you ask those people where the friend or relative got them from, they usually report having gotten them from one doctor. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't some being stolen from pharmacies, some being prescribed on the Internet, but we are seeing a stream that are just coming from doctor's offices in and being used in inappropriate ways. Now, I, I, I just have to interject. I don't want to be promoting the idea that doctors should not be treating pain up until we still have a problem with inappropriately treated pain in this country, and we have to find this balance between the appropriate amount of opioids going out to people that need it for pain and not having those opioids get into the hands of people who are at risk of dying from them. Well, I think that's a very important point. I mean, I've heard of doctors who have patients who are, you know, dying of cancer. Perhaps they'll be dead in a week or in the days, and they'll say, I can't give this man morphine. He's he's an addict. Right. Yeah, we're at, I think, a scary point where we need to find the balance between educating doctors to give out the appropriate amount of opiates to those people that need them and to maybe cut down on their prescriptions for people that are in different situations. I, I had an intern from a college this summer that was repeatedly asked, don't you want more opiates for the nerve injury you've had to your hand? And she said, no, I don't. And she is actually going to work on a project at her university. What's happening with the athletes that get major injuries? We need to really be educating the physicians on how much to give for both ends of things. Acute pain that doesn't need so much, chronic pain that needs to be treated so people can be functional, and cancer pain where people simply need to relieve the pain. I read somewhere, is this true that some people crush up the pills that they get to get a bigger effect? Oh, yes, yes. Um, most people that are using opioids recreationally would like to have an immediate effect, a rush, followed by a period of time that they feel good and functional. Um, and so people do crush them up in order to get that. They'll take something that's supposed to come on slowly, last 12 hours, crush it up in order to get that rush, that that intense euphoria. Um, and so it makes it shorter-acting medication, so they need to take more at a time if they're going to feel particularly high. And uh, a couple more points I want to go into about overdose itself before we talk about preventions. Um, I believe there was some research on environment and uh, overdose, and people that use uh, their opiates in a strange environment are more likely to overdose. Is that true? I am not terribly familiar with that literature, but yes, it appears that the setting in which you use an opiate actually has an impact on how likely you are to die of an overdose from that opiate, and it's been actually not only seen in humans, but it's been seen in rat models. So that actually plays a little bit into our prevention project. Also, when people are uh, when people go through treatment program and they are taken off opiates completely, uh, doesn't their tolerance drop a great deal? And if they use the same amount again, uh, isn't that very dangerous? 
Exactly, and that's actually our, our, our prevention project plays on, on three aspects, prevention of an opiate overdose, recognition, and action on it. And one of the chief places that we need to inform people so they can prevent an overdose is that when they've been away from opiates for a while after an addiction, they use again, their tolerance is gone, and so a small amount may cause them to overdose. And the times you've already mentioned drug treatment, when people go into non-opioid-based drug treatment, they come out with no tolerance. If they relapse, they're at very high risk of overdose. The same goes for when they go into the vast majority of prison settings in the United States where they aren't treated with maintenance for opiate addiction. They come out, they relapse, they party, and they die. The first two weeks after an opiate user has been in prison are extremely high risk for dying to the extent of perhaps even 100 times greater than the risk of the, the average Joe on the street. So that's a key point in preventing overdoses is making sure that people who have been users, their family, their friends, their social workers know that's an extremely high-risk period of time. So I would think that this is something that all treatment programs should educate uh, their clients about. Absolutely. Now, it's a little difficult sometimes for treatment programs or abstinence-based settings like prisons to do that because they're like, well, we're abstinence-based, so we don't want to even talk about the possibility of relapse. We know there are high rates of relapse. However, you can phrase some of that messaging in a way that doesn't say, well, you're in treatment now. I know you're going to relapse, so i got to tell you this, which makes people feel bad. You can also say, you're in treatment with us now. We know that when you leave, you may try to follow the advice of staying away from people using drugs, but you're going back to your community. You need to have these messages to deliver to other people in the community, and perhaps you even need to have the tools that we can give you here, such as naloxone, so that you can save lives in the community. But people need those messages, and there's a lot of ways to give them that don't necessarily say, I think you're going to fail at this attempted abstinence you're having. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Alan Marlett, I mean, he wrote an entire book called Relapse Prevention that uh, it talks about the fact that people often do have a slip, but it doesn't have to, a lapse doesn't have to change into a relapse, as they say. Oh, absolutely. People can have lapses, relapses, and I think it's Ed Salfitz who said collapses. I mean, I I treat people with buprenorphine, as we talked about last time. People have blips. They go back, and then all I can do is say, stop beating yourself up for having the lapse. Start congratulating yourself for getting over the lapse and coming back. Mm -hmm. And also, congratulate yourself for all the the opiate-free days or non-using days you had, you know. It's this idea that you lose all your time is actually a dangerous idea. You know, you should always be proud. Hey, I had ten days I didn't use anything. That was a that was a great accomplishment. Now I used one day, now I can start again. Right. Now but we just have to make sure people don't die on that one day that they do use. Yes, they and have to. So we really need to put education and prevention tools into the hands of both them and their loved ones. Well one of the scariest things that I was told in treatment that was um, they always said if you pick up again you will be using at exactly the same point where you left off and it seems to me that it's a very dangerous thing to tell people. It's a terribly deadly thing. When somebody has been away from opiates for a period of time 
their tolerance is back to where they started. Now, they may be able to escalate more quickly, but their tolerance is back to where they were the day before they ever took opiates. So they need to understand that if they do relapse, they should be only using tiny amounts. Now, there's a huge amount of stigma associated with relapse, and so it's hard to say, well, you shouldn't use alone, but they should not use alone if possible, and they should not be mixing the opiates with other drugs. Now, that's easier said than done because somebody goes out, has a couple drinks, and think, oh, I really miss the heroin. I'm going to go take some heroin or some OxyContin or whatever. But mixing drugs is one of the two or three big risk factors for having a fatal overdose. So people need to know if you relapse, use a small amount, preferably use with someone else and that's a really bad time to be mixing drugs. Now, people commonly mix drugs, but there are times that they need to be more careful about it when they're alone or when they're newly going back to using. But in, in I think it's 2009, or the latest statistics from New York City, 98% of the opioid-related overdose deaths were related to mixing drugs. Now, this brings up an interesting point. I did a little research into this. And it seems like one of the best harm reduction strategies for opiate users is to always use when other people are around, and that's because overdose is such a danger. And we were comparing this to alcohol, and we found uh, actually alcohol overdose is very uncommon. It's, it only accounts for a very small amount of deaths. Um, the biggest number of deaths with alcohol use are involved with fights, accidents, uh, and driving, and uh, so we actually found that people that drink alcohol are probably much safer drinking alone than they are, you know, in company. Well, you know, it, it gets a little complicated. If people use their opiates alone, they're less likely to share needles, so they're less likely to get HIV and hepatitis C, but if they do take too much and have an overdose, there's no one there to help them. So, you know, there's ups and downs to each thing. But as far as overdose goes, having someone there who knows what to do and is willing to do it, <clears throat> and that's a whole other issue, um, is safer. Now, in New York State and several other states, there are now recently passed legislations that say that a person who calls emergency medical services because they believe someone is having an overdose will, in New York State at least, not be prosecuted or charged for the possession of small amounts of drugs or underage drinking. Because a lot of times when people witness an overdose, they're very afraid, and rightfully so, that they will be arrested and charged for drug use, drug possession, or should that person die for murder. And I could tell you about a few cases where there's murder charges as well. So we not only need to have people able to be around other people, but be able to call for help in the case of an overdose. Just the other day I talked to a couple of folks from a, a therapeutic community that knew someone who was prosecuted because somebody they knew had an overdose. They drove them around in the car for the longest time trying to decide what should we do, what should we do, should we go to the emergency room, we might get arrested, what should we do when the person died in the, in the process. If they had been protected by laws, like our new Good Samaritan law in New York State, they might have saved that life and also saved themselves the charges of being accessories to murder. And Good Samaritan laws like that are, in effect, in several states, aren't they? Mm-hmm, yes. 
I don't, I, I don't expect you to list them offhand, but if you uh, happen to know any. Um, well, New York, New Mexico, I believe Washington State, and I'm sorry, I should know better at the other ones. Now, they haven't been evaluated. I don't know if they'll make a huge difference whether people call or not, but I think they send a very strong message to everybody involved, including law enforcement, that saving a life is more important than making an arrest. So I think their effect may be slower or faster, but I think that they are extremely positive developments in this whole scenario. Now, do you work with a program called SCOOP? Is is that your program? The SCOOP program is my program. Um, it stands for Skills and Knowledge in Opiate Overdose Prevention. And this is a program that was started with funds from the New York City Council. The, there's a group called the Injection Drug Users Health Alliance in New York City that lobbied for funds to provide overdose prevention, starting with the syringe exchanges, but we've branched out to many, many other settings. And what we do is train, <coughs> excuse me, drug users and people that are associated with drug users in as little as a 10-minute training to understand how to prevent overdoses, recognize overdoses, and act on overdoses. When they've been through the training, they are provided with a kit that includes naloxone, perhaps more familiarly known as Narcan, which is a medication that when injected or sprayed up the nose will completely reverse the effects of an opiate. So it will take somebody from being high to the point of respiratory depression right back within minutes to breathing again and being sober. And if they happen to be dependent on opiates, they will be in withdrawal. So this is not a fun drug in any way at all. So it's not addictive. So we've now done this with five or 6,000 people in the state of New York where they've received the training and received the kit. In New York State, we've had something over 400 reversals reported using the Narcan where somebody might have died of an overdose. And I guess I should tell you the national statistics. This is available in 16 states in over 189 local programs and over 50,000 kits have been gone have been given out and more than 10,000 people as of a year ago have come back to say that they prevented somebody from potentially dying of an overdose. So it's pretty exciting stuff. And that's only the people that came back to report it. That's just a small number of the overdoses that have probably been prevented, isn't it? I believe so. Our, our work in New York State, we've had some studies where people came to interview people and said, well, if we can find you later, we'll give you $25. And we believe that a much higher rate of overdoses are potentially reversed than are reported to us. I don't know why. I don't know why people don't come, in, come running back. But an example of somebody that didn't come back in New York was a woman who was not a user who, before she received the training, tried to help somebody with an overdose. They did the, the sort of mythical things like injecting salt and putting ice in the armpits. That first person didn't survive. She then came to the training, received her Narcan kit, and she didn't frequent the needle exchange because she wasn't a user. She ran into somebody and said, oh, I guess I need another kit. When my husband came back from prison, he overdosed, and I think I saved his life with the, the kit. She was not somebody that came back to report. She was somebody that ran into somebody on the street. So we think that a large number more are actually being used. 
So it's an exciting program. At this point, it is targeting, in most parts of the country, heroin users, which is my interest. That's what we're doing in New York City, whether through needle exchanges, methadone programs. The New York State Addiction Treatment Centers have been extremely supportive of it and are giving it out in their 28-day programs now, Bellevue Hospital and their detoxification unit. Um, we are in New York being, I think, we're, we're working on reaching the heroin users, but reaching the prescription opioid users is more challenging. And there's a couple places in the country where they're doing some really groundbreaking work doing this as well. Um, there's a project in North Carolina called Project Lazarus in Wilkes County, which has one of the highest overdose or had one of the highest overdose rates in the country, where they are prescribing naloxone alongside of opioid prescriptions. And, in fact, Fort Bragg Army Base looked at them and said, well, we have a lot of, of soldiers with chronic pain that are pe being prescribed opioids. So they are now scaling up a program to prescribe naloxone alongside opioids to active and inactive duty soldiers. So it's it's moving along in very exciting ways. Um, now, you said that they are prescribing naloxone. Uh, in New York City, do you need a prescription to get one of these overdose prevention kits? Well, um, naloxone or Narcan is, is regulated under federal laws, so it requires a prescription. It's not a controlled substance in that it's not, it has really no abuse potential, but it does require a prescription like many blood pressure medicines that aren't controlled. And that's a, a huge barrier, really, to getting it out there. But it, it does, at this point, require a prescription in New York State and unfortunately requires a face-to-face -face encounter with a prescriber. So our agency sends people out to the needle exchanges where they have no doctors on staff to prescribe it on a, on a regular but not constant basis. Um, now, Massachusetts has a pilot program where they have trained lay people who are able to, under a standing order, train people all over Massachusetts and hand out the naloxone under a standing order from their wonderful medical director, Alex Wally. So we need to figure out ways of getting this out onto the streets a little bit more easily than by prescription in a face-to-face -face, face -face encounter with the prescriber. We would like to have the FDA take a look at this and make it an over-the-counter drug, but it is a generic medication, and most medications that go over-the-counter need a lot of money behind them by the drug company financing it. So that's a barrier. None of these things are impossible to overcome, though. We've already come a long way in getting naloxone out in, what, 16 states and nearly 200 programs. So one way to deal with uh, the prescription drug overdose problem you mentioned was what they've done in North Carolina. They're prescribing naloxone side by side with uh, the prescription opiates. Are, are there other things we need to do? Do we need more education of consumers, of doctors? Oh, absolutely. We need both the physicians and the consumers to be educated. Physicians need to understand how much opiate to be prescribing and to whom 
how to begin to deal to to work with people that have both an addiction problem and a pain problem and perhaps a poverty problem underneath it. We can't just throw all those people out of treatment. We need to find ways to work with them, including expanding access to treatment, such as, as buprenorphine, which we spoke about last interview. We need to make sure that consumers are educated so they understand that just because it's a prescribed medicine doesn't mean it's safer than the illicit drugs on the market. I mean, right now we've got a situation where teenagers think, oh, well, this OxyContin in my aunt's closet is safer than the marijuana that my friend next door has. That's not the case, and we need to get the education out about that. So there's a whole lot of different ways that we need to do this. I have a fear right now that we're having nationally and statewide such a multi-pronged approach that we'll never be able to evaluate what works, and I'm very afraid that in the midst of preventing the overdose deaths that we're going to have a major impact on both pain treatment and perhaps even the treatment of addiction. So we're really at a crossroads here now, I think. Well, those are difficult and thorny questions to deal with. We certainly don't want to see, you know, a prohibition. This prohibition has not been effective. It's it's only increased drug use. Oh, absolutely. I mean, right now we are seeing indications, it's not in the the sort of medical literature yet, but we're seeing indications that if we stop the even inappropriate prescribing of opioids without increasing treatment, we may start to see more overdose deaths in certain in communities where that has been cut down on because people suddenly have to turn to supplies that they don't understand. So, yeah, prohibition, completely cutting back, scaring physicians out of treating real pain. And, you know, they may be also inadvertently treating addiction. If somebody goes to the doctor and they get their regular supply of whatever opiate it is, they may be relatively stable treating their addiction. It's an addiction, not pain, but it's stable. And if we start cutting all of that off, we are going to see more people turn to heroin, which... Heroin might be a safe drug if you get it from the pharmacy, but it's not a safe drug on the streets of of the United States by any means. So we need to have a multi-pronged approach that includes making sure we're treating pain properly, making sure we have access to treatment for addiction that's acceptable to the people with addiction, and making sure that we have tools like naloxone to prevent overdose. Well, it is. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a person I knew that uh, had 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 a crack addiction, and uh, that had the uh, the way they managed to stop that was they got a um, prescription opiates instead, and uh, they no longer felt the need to use crack after they had their opiates prescription. And they were they were taking quite a big dose of opiates, but it, it's it is a way. It's a substitution treatment that can help some people. Well, that's a, I, I think that's a bit unusual for a stimulant user to switch over to an opiate, but I don't think it's completely out of line. Yeah, we need to be looking at a whole wide array of ways of helping people that that feel whatever dissatisfaction with a medication or a lifestyle change that makes them be able to live in their skin. And we need to be thinking more out of the box. It's like, oh, this is terrible. I mean, you know, marijuana is a great example. There's all these people that feel good smoking marijuana, um, which is not a 
big interest of the harm reduction coalition but instead they'll take the person smoking marijuana or uh, let me go back to opiates i I've been to treatment programs where, okay, we're not going to give them opiates anymore, but we're going to send them out on a list of five or six psychiatric medications that have major side effects with them just so that we don't need to give them a legally prescribed opiate that has a relatively short list of side effects with it. We need to begin to expand the way that we help people feel comfortable and be productive because it's really about being productive being able to be the family member, the workforce person, the student, whatever. Well, we've got just a couple minutes to finish up here. I see our next guest is waiting in the wings already. So um, one thing I would like to ask, do we need to teach people how to use drugs safely, recreationally? Yes. I mean, people... We know from children spinning to adults spinning, whirling dervishes, all sorts of people. Place, people like to feel different, and different people have different urges to feel different, stronger or less, different kinds of ways. But I think we're not going to deal with the drug problem until we sort of say people like to feel different. And drugs is one of many ways that they can do that. But we we need to be able to give guidance. We need to figure out our, as our Ourselves, you know, amongst ourselves as adults, and give guidance to people that are growing up. On sure, you want to feel different. There's a lot of ways you can do that, and some of them are safer than others. But bungee jumping, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I worry about our whole thing about oh, football. That's a great way to keep kids away from drugs, and now we're learning mm-hmm, about mm-hmm, the head injuries mm-hmm. that go along with that. So, yes, people like to feel different. We need to accept that and figure out how to educate people on the healthier ways of doing that as opposed to the least healthy ways of doing it. Well, it's odd that that, uh, some of the most dangerous drugs in existence, which are alcohol and tobacco, are the legal ones. Yeah, well, I I presume you've read the work by the British professor, Dr. Nutt, with two Ts, who has made a scale of how drugs would really be classified if we based it on their addictive potential and Mm -hmm. their their (coughs) harm potential, and it's very different. And apparently he lost his job over publishing that in The Lancet, which is, of course, a very prestigious medical journal. It would look very different if we based our judgments on science rather than history and politics. Well, it's time to close this segment, so thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. Stankler. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. And I appreciate your book, by the way. I have a copy, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you. We're going to bring our next guest on now. Our next guest is uh, Lisa Dietz, who is uh, the creator of the DBT Self-Help website. Hello, Lisa. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing fine. Okay, this is uh, Lisa Dietz. Uh, did I say your last name right? Yeah, Dietz, right. And she has created uh, the DBT self-help website, which is a source I used quite a bit when I was writing my book. I have a section on DBT there because I think many parts of DBT can be uh, useful to people who are trying to change their substance abuse problems. And I also referred to the website and to some of Marsha Linehan's books and wrote a little bit. And I'm very happy to have you as our guest tonight, Lisa. Uh, What motivated you to uh, create this website, and what got you involved with DBT? 
Well, um, I got involved with DBT because I was as a client, um, and um, which means I was in um, hospitals, had several hospitalizations, and was finally for having borderline personality disorder, among other things. And then I was um, finally committed to a state institution. And when I went to the, that place, they were doing the first um, experimental trial of using DBT as the only therapy for inpatient um, people in this crisis unit. And so um, I, I feel very lucky because it was a real immersion kind of a thing from my first experience with DBT. And the difference between DBT and talk therapy, which I had previously, before that, had about 10 years of, and and I'm happy that I did, but DBT is a cognitive-based therapy. So as opposed to going into a group and talking about, well, what happened in your life and, and the various other things, this is a two-hour group. The first hour is spent teaching you um, lessons on the four different um um phases there in the in the DBT program and so um and then the ha- the then the second um hour of the group is spent on um doing homework and talking about the homework so it's all um a very it's all very cognitive and the thing that was good for me about that is that um I had it was the first time that I had something practical to do that I could be in a situation and then I can say, well, I don't know what to do now, and I could look up the skills and you know and actually have something to practice. And after that, I was I've never been hospitalized since that time. Well, that's great. Now DBT. The website, you asked mm-hmm. about the go website, ahead, why ahead. it was created. Mm-hmm. Um, after um, a couple of times of taking DBT, I was on an online listserv and uh, talked to various people there about how to remain connected to DBT after you'd completed like a phase one or a phase two sometimes that they had of the program. And and there's a lot of people who, you know, didn't need to go back to the beginning, but they would like to have uh, support from peers. And Anish, so I was in contact with Kira Van Gelder, who is um, a recent author of um, uh, Buddha, and the Border, Buddha and the Borderline. <laughs> Wait, maybe I didn't get that right. Anyway, I'll go on. Um Anyway, the um, so we were talking about um, having a way to um, continue on, and we were we were hoping to set up like um, groups like AA groups, uh, basically peer led, and we could come up with some sort of a, a design, a program, and then um, and then people worldwide could find out how to use this program and all that, but it didn't work out. The nature of borderline personality disorder is really hard to have a peer-led group. And so um, Kira went on to become a speaker and author, and I continued to to build this website. And 
at that time in 2001 there was um there was no website out there for um clients of DBT you know group participants and so um so I started um out by providing free information um for anybody who was interested in continuing on with DBT and I started out with the lessons by um having people who had been through each module of DBT and I wrote some of the lessons other pe- people wrote some and they would go through and talk about what the module was and how they used it in their own life and then um and how it helped them and then gave um suggestions for exercises or discussions and um to create an open dialogue of of um DBT participants engaging with peers well, I think the website is a really great resource, and I used it a lot. Um, and I know you can Google DBT self-help. What's the uh, URL, the web address? It's www.dbtselfhelp.com. Okay. And DBT stands for Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. And Why do you call it dialectical? Well, um, the, the DBT was started by Marshall Linehan in um, the late 80s, early 90s, and um, and the the idea of the word dialectical is that two things seemingly opposite um, can both be true at once. And um, a really um, simple example would be to say um, both I can. I can be angry with my son's behavior, but I can love my son. And um, people who have borderline personality disorder especially have um, tend to see things in a really black and white way. And so this was trying to open up people's minds to um, to looking at things in a different point of view. Okay. Are there... Uh aspects of dbt that come from uh eastern philosophical traditions like buddhism right well i'm i'm really i'm not an expert in dbt and so um but it it does come from um marshall linehan de- developed it by studying eastern philosophies eastern religions and so what she did which which is really has a lot of good things in it and and what she did is she took out the the religious elements of that, and she also added in certain Western philosophies and tried to kind of gather together the best of everything that would work for at that time specifically for people with BPD, and um, and so she put it into a format that would make it um, a measurable that would make it measurable to the psychiatric community so that they could see how progress was being made. and um, But like mindfulness, which is really one of the, the most basic module of DBT, um, comes, you know, right out of um, a lot of different Eastern philosophies. Okay, that brings us to the next question I was going to ask, because I see that there are four DBT skills. There's mindfulness skills, distress mm-hmm. tolerance skills, emotion regulation skills, and interpersonal 
effectiveness skills. And let's start by talking about the mindfulness skills. Tell me about them. Well, um, the mindfulness skill is really the most important one. And usually when you go through a DBT group, um, they're going to go through one of the modules and then they'll do mindfulness and they go through a module and always coming back to mindfulness in between. And um, and that's because um, what mindfulness does is it helps to put you into the present. And so if, if you're um, the situation that happens a lot of times for people who might be panicking or um, acting out, be having acting out behaviors and, and stuff like that, um, that, you know, you can talk to someone like that all that you want, but the first thing to do is to try to get a change to your state of mind. And and that can sometimes simply mean breathing and breathing slowly and, and getting yourself to calm down. But... Um, Specifically in in DBT, they talk about um, observing, you know, so you can practice observing the world and then describing things that you see and then participating and then doing that non-judgmentally. So that means that um, as opposed to saying something like... um, um, my mom came in and got angry at me and um and she she was you know um you know trying to get back at me or something like that. I would say, well, my mom came in to my you know and and she had a look on her face that made me think of anger, and she told me x y and z and you know, um, so you're 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 just trying to observe what are the facial expressions and take the emotion out of it, and just um, and then and just get it down to being there, right there in that moment. And so that's the basic of mindfulness. Um, and they talk about then coming to finally coming to wise mind, and so you take your logic mind. Um, and you take your emotion mind, and where the two overlap is called wise mind. And that is typically that place where, um, you know, when you're, you're doing something and, then, and you suddenly go, oh, this is the right thing to do, or you just have a feeling that, that, that something is really right, an intuition or something like that. That is usually that point of wise mind. Okay, so wise mind is when the reasonable mind and the emotional mind are are in agreement with each other. Is that it? Right, right, yeah, and um, and it and it all fits together from um, really it all goes back to that not judging yourself and not judging other people. That's the hardest thing to do. Okay, DBT also teaches distress tolerance skills. So what are yeah. the distress tolerance skills? Um, well, distress tolerance is um, actually my favorite group of skills, and um, and so um, this is um, whereas mindfulness, although it's, it can be done right at the point where you're having a crisis, um, 
the these other three modules are getting at a little bit more specific things and um and so this is literally distress tolerance is literally tolerating distress and so um some of those are self soothing skills um skills on improving the mo- the moment for instance um you can create imagery um these are all things to do to help you tolerate whatever is going on at the moment and so um and and so maybe you'll use imagery maybe you'll try to create meaning in what you're doing um uh, maybe you're going to have relaxation maybe like i get a lot of overwhelm and so i need to stop and thinking about everything that has to be done and everything i want to do and then go down to saying okay i can do this right here right now i'm in this moment and this is what i will do and i'm going to let the rest of it go and um and also in distress tolerance is um the pros and cons that you can do for tolerating distress or not tolerating distress so you could say um um if i tolerate this distress right now this is what's going to happen this is these are the good things that are going to happen if i don't tolerate it these are the good and the bad things that are going to happen and that's to help convince you that it's a good idea you know to tolerate the distress but you're still working it out for your for yourself um there's a lot of acronyms in DBT <laughs> one of them is accepts and that's part of this tolerance and so here they're saying we're talking about distracting okay so this is um let's say i'm in a situation where i'm feeling a lot of urges to do self harm or and i uh, or to act out in an angry way or something like that so i could distress with an activity like i could go for a walk i could play a movie um i i would do something outside of myself play a computer game because the point here is that you need to change your state of mind before you can um solve your problems and and a lot of times you need to just simply get to the next moment and um and which is a lot like um uh the for well and DBT is used sometimes for drug abuse um and and treatment and it's about one moment at a time and getting from moment to moment and this is exactly the same thing so there's also so that's an a activities um the c is contributing to perhaps you volunteer work um you can distract with comparisons that's the other c and um that would be to not compare yourself to people who are always better but to compare yourself to what's going on in your own world and how things have changed you can have e as emotions to distract with opposite emotions and and that's um to say i am let's say hmm you just have if you have an urge and you're um you can uh I'll come I have to come back to the op- that's a little bit harder to describe opposite emotions 
Um, but then there's pushing away. That would be the P in there, and that's, um, you know, again, doing something separate for a period of time, blocking a situation out of your mind, distracting with other thoughts, that's the T, and distract with other sensations. And the sensation part is, is just very helpful is, you know, if you just stop, and and you say, um, well, what does it feel like right now on my elbow, the back of my elbow? What does that feel like? And and then you go, well, the front of your elbow. What does that feel like? And in order to do that and to really feel that, you have to stop where you're going. You can really only think of one thing at a time, and you'll have to focus on that. And that that helps you to get away from. Uh, the distress that you're in. Yes, these uh, these uh, distress tolerance skills seem very useful for people that are having you know urges to use drugs or alcohol and trying to you know put them down. Um, these these are ones that I saw that, that were extremely useful. I'm always telling people to look at these these distress tolerance skills as a way to deal with urges. Right. Yeah, and it's. Um, also, you know, um, well, if, and also emotion regulation has a lot of the same things. And, and they, as far as I'm concerned, both distress tolerance and emotion regulations, inter, they just interact and you use them according to what's helpful for you. And, um, for instance, radical acceptance is usually put into... Um, the emotion regulation, but I find it as an incredibly good distress tolerance skill. And radical acceptance means that the whatever situation is going on right now, you evaluate that there's nothing you can do about it right at this time. Maybe it's something that's coming up in the future. Maybe it's a relationship and a meeting or something that has to go on. And, and so you don't like it. You don't want to accept it. You don't there's no you don't have to like it at all but you just accept it you just say for now i'm going to accept this there's no benefit i can't be effective in any way by by hanging on it and so that's a very so i think radical acceptance is um one of the best skills uh the most helpful skills at, at least for myself um and then um there are also on any emotion regulation that it covers things about what emotions are, describing your emotion, and the function of emotions. We don't all have to hate emotions because it it we we love our emotions. And everything has a positive side to it. Even if you're angry, it might, for instance, um, make you um, more motivated to do something and that is positive. Um, reducing vulnerability is another one of emotion regulation. And um, this is so vital. And um, this is all about, treat, you know, about all the physical things. And um, <laughs> they have a really horrible, actually, acronym on here that is called Please Master. And I just hope <laughs> one day that somebody will change these acronyms. But... Um, but you go into it, and the the p and l is about treating physical illness, you know stepping back and saying, um, you know um, 
am I if, if I'm in pain or something like that, then maybe I need to take care of that. And that and if I'm in pain, it's going to be affecting the way that I interact with the world and everyone. Um, balanced eating, um, avoiding mood-altering drugs, balanced sleep, getting exercise—all of those things, if that I, you know, lack thereof, is going to be, um, you know, it's going to affect every single thing I do. If you're really tired, and of course, if you're taking, um, you know, drugs that um, that are not prescription medications, then. Um, it's affecting everything around you, you know, everything that you possibly can be doing. Um, and then um, then we have um, paying attention to the positives because the, whether you have borderline personality disorder or any other form of mental illness or you're just depressed, we all have a tendency to look at the negatives when we're feeling depressed. And so if you can begin to write down things like a gratitude journal or whatever it takes um, to pay attention to that. Um, There is um, letting go of painful emotions, and there's opposite to emotion action. And um, that is a um, kind of... um, um it can it can take the form of let's say um a re- a, a feeling of rebellion or something of doing you know uh, if i feel like taking drugs if i feel like um harming myself or something like that and instead i'm going to do i'm going to force myself almost in kind of a ferocious way that is hard to you know um to go through and and to have to say like um instead I am going to listen to an exercise tape. I am going to, you know, go for a walk and whatever it is that that is more or less opposite. Again, you're forcing yourself out of that state of mind. And once you can force yourself out of the state of mind of that crisis, there's a chance at that point that um that you can do something positive and the more you practice doing it the better you get at it yeah i found that to be a very helpful technique um you know when dealing with depression or anxiety you know you have to force yourself to do something sometimes and if you can manage to force yourself to act you know you can start to feeling better it's it's not easy right. but it helps right if it's just the smallest thing that um, that that you can say, I'm going to cook this dinner, or I'm going to make a meal for myself here, and you know, and see that as something that you're doing. You've gotten out of bed, and you've done one thing, you know. I know. Somewhere I was reading about, you know, you can sweep the floor and put all your mind into sweeping the floor or make tea and put all your mind into making tea, especially because uh, on my day job, I'm sweeping, sweeping this big church and have these huge floors to sweep. I just do that as kind of my, my meditation practice. 
Yeah, it can be it can be very meditative. Um, I mean, I somebody told, was telling me about um, that when you wash dishes, you should you could uh, wash the you're washing the baby Buddha, and I mean, it, life can you can get completely caught up in whatever you're doing, and you know what? It, I'm sure for you when you're talking about sweeping is that when you start paying attention to the motion of the broom, you start noticing the dust on the floor, and you everything beca- it becomes almost surreal. And um, because you're letting go of all those outside things that are constantly pressing on you, and you're taking this moment, and once you're in that moment, you know... You can just there's a lot you can do there's it can you can including just being calm you know in a meditative state, whatever mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. our last skill set here of the four is the interpersonal effectiveness skills. Tell me a little right. bit about those well, um they are a set of very helpful skills and um and i I um, struggle with them myself personally because um, I also have a lot of social anxiety, and um, and so the interpersonal effectiveness skills um, help you to um, to in terms of how to um, talk to someone, how to be in a situation, and how to judge whether or not you have. Um, you, you can feel that you have the right to be acting in that situation. And there's usually, they talk about, um, um, the, um, so they talk about the, the specific type of effectiveness. If you're in a relationship and you have some sort of thing going on, then um, you have to look at well, what is my goal here in in this relationship? Do I is is the most important thing the relationship? Is the most important thing just keeping my self esteem, or is the most important thing gaining my object my objective? And um, and once you decide that, then um, then you have to look at ways of um, of, of working with it, and and um, I actually have always in my mind the dear, the the acronym dear man, and um, and and it works so well if I can do this instead of reacting to someone and reacting to a situation. I have if I can take a minute back and first describe, and um, so you could say. Um, um, let's see. Um, I use the example. Are, are you sure there? Yes. Okay. I just sound like we get cut off a minute. Um, I use the example on the uh, on the website of um, try, of wanting to keep my parking place um, in an apartment building, and other people, you know, there's a, a set parking place, and other people are using it. And so I'm feeling upset and agitated about that. And so now if I wanted to talk to someone about that instead of saying, get your damn car out of my 
you know, um, out of my parking place and yelling about it. First, I can say, I can describe the situation and say, you know, I've noticed that there's a a, a place that's a sign for each apartment, and um, and I've noticed that that you have been parking in the place that's a sign for my apartment, and um, then you go to E, which is to express how you feel about it. And um, I could say I'm feeling disappointed and um, and um, anxious uh, that that I'm not able to use that spot when I when I really when I need to use it or I think I should have it available to me. Um, and then the next thing is assert what it would, to say um, what it is that you want. And then I could say, well, I'd like it if you didn't park in that place anymore. And then reinforce is to, is, is to say why it's going to be really good for them uh, to, to do it. Because I could say maybe, um, you know, I think that we'd all get along better, that we could um, each have our cars um, so, that, so that the people at least who live here have their parking place and we don't have to go off on the street or things like that. The rest of it is about, um, and then the rest, of, that's, that's like the deer, D-E-A-R. And then the um, the other part about, is about the deer man is, M is about staying mindful while you're talking. Um, A is to appear confident. And, B, or, and N is the um, readiness to negotiate. So in that case, that was me saying the most important part of this thing that I'm upset about and the other people around is that I want my objective. My objective is that I want my parking place. And then, um, and then I go through that. And even for the simple things, um, it is people don't get, you know, defensive when you're talking to them and they – and you're not giving them new statements and um and so very often they're just they're so happy that you know that that you're talking to them in such a rational manner that you know they're they're really happy to do it <clears throat> okay we're going to have to finish up for tonight we're running out of time but thank you okay. lisa very much for being our guest tonight and everyone uh come on back next week when our guests will be Alan Clear and Alan Frimpong from the Harm Reduction Coalition and Shiloh Jama from the People's Harm Reduction Alliance in uh, Washington State. And we will have, be having a roundtable discussion of drug user stigma. So everyone, thank you and good night. Thank you.